Old Vines Written by Sevdrak and read by Literarian Chapter 12 Tempering and Tending Part 2 April to Crowley is a magical month. Magical in that it always feels cursed. The beginning of April is always three years long, while he waits in a pool of anxiety for Budburst, for the oncoming signs that his vines will, in fact, make grapes this year. Then, to make up for the decade he has to wait through, the rest of April flies by in what feels like three days. But break is the beginning. That is, the beginning of the spring process, on which so much of their fall harvest will be based. After April comes May, and if April was the worst, May is the actual worst. When he first started, Crowley had to outsource because he had no idea how to handle his own pruning. Luckily, within all the paperwork she'd left him, there were some recommendations and Crowley had stalked them, watching their shoot thinning technique and asking so many questions he'd nearly been banned off his own land. In order to have meaningful growth, you have to tend, to guide, to prune back and redirect and shape. Crowley has no control over Budburst, which makes him anxious. Now he has all of the control over the tending of the vines, and it isn't much better. The biggest difference is that he always feels better when his hands are on the vines, leaving his fingerprints on the living plants he's responsible for. At this point, Crowley can trust Adam and Anathema to manage it as long as he's there with them to help. Suckering is delicate. Take off too much and you're stifling the vine. Take off too little and the vine needs too many resources to keep growing and starves itself. Do it too early and you'll have to do it again in late spring. Too late and the vines are already set in their ways. They have to do it all at once, the suckering and topping and pruning, because there's ten acres to get through and Crowley does as much of it himself as he can before he has to call in the contractors he'll inevitably hover over and yell at. Anathema's a natural, after her first year, where she literally deliberated over every single green shoot, talking to each like they could answer her. Although she occasionally tends to underthin. When she does, she invariably has some reason for it, like the vines told her it was okay, and Crowley always wants to argue with her. Then he remembers that he himself tastes dirt and yells at his plants, and he thinks, hey, Maybe that's just the metaphor Anathema uses for herself. 
Adam is slow to it, but this is only his second year at Suckerang. He asks Crowley a lot of questions, but Crowley never had a problem with questions. Adam has the eye for it. He just needs to be able to trust himself, and then Crowley will have two other people who can manage small groups of contractors without that desperate itch between his shoulder blades that always shows up when he has to trust someone that isn't himself. May tending is second only to harvest in actual intensity. Crowley has to check a calendar daily, because when he's suckering, he's working 12 or 14 hours at a stretch, and he often forgets what day of the week it is. Crowley spends his hours walking the rows, pinching off the tiny green shoots when he thinks there are too many, cutting back leaves when he feels they'll block the sun and the wind, topping the longer shoots and hedging vines that seem to be overstretching themselves. Some nights he can't sleep and he'll wander out into the vineyard, bare feet and giant hoodie and only the light of the moon and the electric lantern he keeps by his back door. Sunrise will find him deep in the petite Seurat or the Shard, waking up from a trance he hadn't even known he had entered, dirt and vine caked under his fingernails and his feet chilled pale. It's one of these days when Crowley's up to his elbows in the sink, scrubbing soil out from under his fingernails, when they fucking show up. Boss! Anathema calls from the tasting bar, and Crowley can tell immediately by her tone of voice, and the fact that she only calls him boss when she's making a point, that it's something he isn't going to like. Inspector's here for you. Ah, fuck. Just a minute, Crowley yells back, cause he's not gonna dance to that tune any more than he has to. He finishes washing his hands clean as best he can, dries them, and then takes a moment to swing his hair up into a bun on the top of his head. Of course he's wearing the dark blue jeans with the tasteful holes in them and a graphic tee under a torn hoodie. He hadn't planned on working the tasting room at all today, and it shows. Talk about having a nemesis. Nemeses. Multiple nemesis whatever. Inspectors Huster and Ligger are... Well, yes, they're certified inspectors, they keep up with their paperwork, but they're independent contractors, meaning they're inspectors for hire. Crowley is 99% positive that it's Dagen who sends them, sporadically, trying to keep Crowley on his toes. Any sort of inspection failure could affect his insurance rates, which then could affect the terms of his loans. Crowley's pretty sure he could fight it, legally, because it's a little bit too much like the fucking wine country mob to be entirely legit. 
he's also pretty sure that fighting it legally could cost him the winery. He'd prefer to avoid it altogether. Just like he would rather avoid Huster and Ligger altogether, but they always, always ask for him. By name. Legally, Anathema, Newt and Adam can all speak in his name to authorities like inspectors, but that isn't good enough for those two demons. As always, Huster and Ligger have confused business professional and working wear. They're wearing suit jackets and button-downs, because that's professional, but their shirts are covered in dirt and oil. Ligger has an obvious tear up the sleeve of his jacket. Huster's shirt has the drips of an obvious coffee stain. They're as terrible as they look. Crowley, 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 Ligger says with a sneer. The thing is, Crowley wouldn't be so... He isn't afraid of them, no concerned about their visits, if all was normal. Huster and Ligger are a couple of posturing idiots, just clever enough to stay certified without retaining any of the knowledge a real inspector should have, and Crowley spent his first turn of existence dealing with wankers like them on a regular basis. They don't bother him that way. But they do concern him because they're just maliciously looking to fail him on something, and even one strike is more than Crowley wants to deal with. He has enough anxiety over the goddamn vines without having to worry about the operation as well. Hi, guys, he says, swaggering his way over there like he's wearing Prada rather than grunge he found in the garbage bin at a target. Sorry to make you wait. He makes it absolutely clear that he isn't sorry at all. Hello, Crawley. Hustle loves that particular joke and makes sure to remind Crowley how much he loves it every time they meet. Got a bit of time for us today? Always have a bit of time for my favourite inspectors for hire, yes. Crowley gives them a bow that should look incredibly half-arsed. What's on the books then today? Time to examine the bar stools, check out the toilets. Behind them, Anathema throws him a warning look. Crowley shakes his head and turns back to Huster, glad they can't see him rolling his eyes behind the dark lenses. Not dressed up like Mr. Slick, are we? Ligger lets his gaze trail all the way down to Crowley's muddy morels and then back up. Back on hard times, Crowley which is hilarious, because both of them look like they climbed out of a dumpster after a failed business meeting. Mm, you know how it is. It's like a game, trying to manage just how sharply he can insult them without crossing the line. Actual work can be hard on the wardrobe. 
He gestures at the blatant tear up Ligger's sleeve, giving him his most dramatic pout. You may want to try something less formal next time. Hey, says Ligger, actually sounding insulted. This is my working blazer. Huster gives them both a nasty smile and raises the clipboard in his hand. Standard quarterly inspection, he tells Crowley, despite the fact that they both know there's no standard quarterly anything. Crowley files his paperwork and licenses on time and arranges the required audits with a real government board. He's not an idiot. Crowley always wondered what would happen if he were to deny them access. The thing is that they are certified inspectors and they've been hired by someone to do a job. He's tempted, certainly. If nothing else, it could reveal who is pulling the strings, Dagen, and might give him enough weight to press her into a step back. That all sounds like a headache, though, and Crowley has enough headaches in his life. Someday he'll have the energy to take up that fight, but it isn't today. Well, I'm not legally required to give you more than a half hour, he says instead. They play these games with each other. Huster pushes, Crowley pushes back, Ligger makes vague threats and supportive noises. Let's get started. Oh, you don't have to follow us around, Huster sneers. We can handle it on our own. Not on my fucking life, Crowley thinks. He doesn't trust either of them farther than he could throw them one-handed wearing heels. That's not very hospitable, he says instead, and throws an arm out in a jerky welcome gesture. What's on your list, then? Deeds of the day? Most of their sloppily made-up checklist is equipment-based this time, so Crowley leads them the long way back to the operations building. He leans back against the wall and watches as Ligger and Haster absolutely embarrass themselves by not knowing which piece of equipment is which. Crowley! Huster finally snaps. We have to check the grounding wire on the grape tables. Which is it? Nope, Crowley says, as Ligger's hand darts out to touch something. Nope, he repeats, and then nope, as Ligger expectantly moves his hand around the equipment, pointing at different bits. Still not the grounding wire, Crowley continues, pushing himself off the wall and dragging himself across the room, hands in his pocket. Nope, Ligger Christ, that's a wheel. Well, it's on the ground, Ligger says defensively, but he stands up and folds his arms across his chest, looking crossly at Crowley. This is such a fucking farce. 
Crowley takes a second to daydream about a world where he's financially stable enough to actually call their bluff, to throw down his hand and call all the way up to Dagon, tell her to cut this shit out. Then he sighs and opens up the access panel on the motor. Grounding wire is green, he drawls, stepping back so that Huster and Ligger can both see. Don't fucking touch it! It's still plugged in, you idiot. Crowley adds as Huster pulls his hand back with a muffled curse. Ligger grumbles. Huster continues to stare at it for a long moment before he mumbles something like, Whoa, that's all right then, and scribbles on the checklist. Crowley's pretty sure he has filled in at least three lines with badly drawn dicks. Come on then, Crowley says, reaching out for the clipboard. Huster hugs it to his chest with something like a hiss, and Crowley thanks Satan for the sunglasses, which hide the fact that he is rolling his eyes all the way to the moon. It's around dinner time a few days later when Crowley feels his phone vibrate against his thigh. His leggings have those great thigh pockets for runners to keep their phones and keys and whatever. Ha! Runners! Crowley's never run a day in his life. He saunters, thanks. His fingers smell like fresh greenery and he smears some of it across the glass as he swipes it open. Your prince here. Anathema, Crowley whines. Can you please make your boyfriend type properly? Oh, she chirps, far too happy for someone who has been out here since 8.30 this morning. He can, he just doesn't. I'm assuming those are words. Please do try again. Your friend is here, the one with the blog. Ah. For a second, Crowley considers having Newt show Aziraphale out to the vineyard. He's fairly sure the man would love to see the process. He can see Aziraphale now, hastily writing, trying to hold that stupid notebook still with one hand. But there's something a bit raw about seeing Aziraphale here in his terrain. Crowley doesn't want to look at it, so he shan't. All right, let's wind it up, he tells Anathema. Adam's off at another client, and not a single other member of the them had seemed at all interested in coming to thin out tiny green shootlings and occasionally trim back thick chunks of vine. It's just the two of them. Time to go save your better half. Anathema just looks at him, her hands idly wiping themselves clean, 
and a low smile spreads across her face. He's here, isn't he? Aziraphale. Crowley has no idea why he blushes at that. It doesn't mean anything. Just means that Aziraphale's here for a drink and probably looking for company. It's also half six, Anathema. Keep up. We've got a lot done today. He is here, she replies with a grin, dusting her hands off over the folds of her skirt. Anathema, being nothing but an enigma wrapped in gothy nerd clothing, works the vineyards in skirts. Crowley isn't sure whether it's a personal preference, a desire to wear what women must have worn in the gardens for centuries before, or just an unfortunate fashion statement. He rather likes it. There's some kind of gothic tragic romance he's found to running around the vineyard in skirts. Well, yes, Crowley says, a little more snippy than he intended. So let's not make him wait, huh? He doesn't have to glance over to know that Anathema is leveling her look on him. It's the one she says can show her someone's aura or read their fortune. Whether that's true or not, it's a look that carries a lot of judgment in it. Crowley doesn't need that negative energy in his life right now. They stop in the coat room to scrub up to their elbows. Crowley likes wearing the vineyard, really, but he can't really shed dirt in a public winery that serves food, and it would be just his luck to have Huster and Ligger sitting there, oh hell, next to his angel. Nope, that's not the fuck happening. Not on Crowley's watch. Of course, he emerges from the back room with his dripping hands tumbling his hair back into a tie, sees Aziraphale sitting by himself, and realizes he just thought, my angel, at him, which is the most disgusting thought Crowley's had since he was twelve. He needs to, like, bleach out his brain and do something very much not sappy right now. Then Aziraphale smiles at him, and Crowley kind of shoves that all aside, because Aziraphale looks oddly upset. The smile is genuine, sure, but there's some kind of resigned note around his eyes that Crowley's never really noted before. Hey, angel, he says as he approaches, and watches as Aziraphale fondly rolls his eyes. How's it going? Crowley leans on the bar, elbows braced, trying not to look too concerned. Ah, you know, Aziraphale sighs, rolling his eyes again. I've just... Oh, Crowley! he says suddenly, as if taking in something surprising. You look exhausted. Oh, whatever, Crowley says, 
although all Aziraphale has to do is give him that look, that one that's a bit too tender for acquaintances like them, and it's like the days land heavy on his shoulders. Twelve, fourteen hours out on the land, less than five hours of sleep, anxiety at a constant low boil coming up from his feet like weights tied around his ankles. Spring. He makes a tired gesture towards the back of the room, indicating all ten goddamned acres of this place. Lots of work. How are you really? Aziraphale opens his mouth as if he's going to say fine, and Crowley takes a second to flash a look over his sunglasses, and Aziraphale sighs and kind of melts. Oh, it's been a day, let me tell you. Over a glass? Crowley glances around. Newt's happily talking to the couple on one side, who appear to be doing tasting flights. Brian's out chatting with a small group sitting at the cafe tables, who are here for dinner. The sight of the food hits him, and Crowley suddenly realizes he's starving. He isn't sure he remembered lunch. Sometimes he doesn't. Yeah, he says, a little distracted, and that's when Anathema swoops in. You both look like you could use a break, she says, and her voice is all hard, kind, no-nonsense. Crowley, why don't you get out of here? Take Aziraphale to somewhere else with good wine and food for a change. Anathema, Crowley warns her, because that sounds almost like a date, but all she does is smile benignly at him. You know, she tells Aziraphale, not sorry at all, he hasn't been off this property in at least two weeks. He's been going from his house to the fields to the chasten room and back. Pulling insane hours. He's going to collapse soon. I don't collapse, Crowley announces, but apparently no one is listening to him. Aziraphale turns to him with a bit of his usual sparkle back in his eyes and says, No pressure at all, but... Oh, I'd love to try anywhere you recommend. I'd be delighted. Crowley could thank Anathema for getting some of those shadows off of Aziraphale's face, except that he's going to kill her immediately afterward because she isn't being subtle at all. Right, says Crowley. Unk, sure. Aziraphale beams, and Anathema's smile is incredibly smug. Crowley just shakes his head at her, and the smile goes even broader, and he knows Anathema's rewarding herself a point on whatever scoreboard she keeps between them. Honestly, Crowley probably owes her a few points. Lord knows he was insufferable when she and Newt were working their deal out, but... Oh, hold on. This is nothing like Anathema and Newt. 
This is Crowley and a temporary friend who's only in the area to write a famous novel and go back to public blogging life in six months. He sighs. <sighs> Let me grab my jacket. Aziraphale makes suitably lovely noises over the Bentley and suitably horrified noises over Crowley's driving, which suits Crowley just fine. He's taking them to the Tan One pub and grill. It's a little local place, big enough that they get some of the local tourism in, but it isn't a winery itself. It's just a little pub and restaurant, maybe a 15-minute drive away, and it's where Crowley goes the few times a year that he wants to be out and about. He usually gets all of the social time he could possibly want at Ecstasy's, whether it's Anathema and Newt, the Them or the Tasting Room, but every now and then Crowley gets the itch to go disappear in a crowd and have a drink and a meal like he's just a visitor the tan once where he goes when he needs to do that. They're lucky enough to find two seats tucked towards the end of the bar that curves through the room. Crowley always prefers the bar to a table. Service is usually better, and there's a different atmosphere at the bar of any place here in the valley. Customers get tables and get a feel for the place, but one thing Crowley has learned is that the bar is the heart of any establishment that has one. He likes being up front, catching the pulse not only from the customers and the dinner crowd, but from the staff as well. And it doesn't hurt that Aziraphale seems enthralled, looking over the wine list, scooting his stool a bit closer to Crowley's so that he can lean in and speak over the general din of the place. Is this a place you come to often? Aziraphale calls, a few beautiful inches away from Crowley. Why can't he ever goddamn help himself? He leans in, elbow on the bar, his foot already resting on one of the rungs on Aziraphale's stool. He's thrown his leather jacket over a long black tee and the leggings he had on before, with his big thumping motorcycle boots and his hair in a high bun. The sunglasses make it hard to see, but there are enough people here that he just knows someone will make a stupid comment if he takes them off. Yeah, sometimes, he tells Aziraphale. It's a good place for locals. They have bands sometimes. Oh, I love live music, Aziraphale says, turning into him with one of those happy, blinding smiles. What sort do they have here? I might drag you back. Drag you back sounds too much like a date. That Crowley wants, apparently, goddamn everything in his life. 
But at this point, he's exhausted and hungry and absolutely weak for anything this man suggests. Here, he says, flicking over the paper menu in front of them. They have a schedule, although it's by band name. What kind of music do you uh, enjoy? Oh, a moment, Aziraphale says, because the bartender has approached them. She recognizes Crowley with a nod and turns to Aziraphale with a smile. Do you recommend anything? Aziraphale asks him, all sunshine smile and sparkling eyes. Sometimes Crowley comes here just because Ecdesis is on their wine list. For some reason, seeing his bottles printed out here, some by glass and some by bottle only, can sometimes reassure that tidal wave of anxiety at the base of his spine. It isn't like he buys his own wine here, but seeing it on the menu as an option this place has chosen to offer is surprisingly reassuring. Right, he says, drawling it out and taking his time glancing down the menu, even though he knows what he's going to order already. Two waters, right? And the fried Brussels sprouts. I'll have the RPI cab and the permissions pinot for him. The bartender smiles, nods, and leaves. Aziraphale glances over at him as she brings them two full water glasses. I had asked for a recommendation, not a decision, he says, but it's far more teasing than it would be if he meant it. Crowley grins back at him, having a sip of the ice-cold water. It reminds him, from his brain down to his spine, that he can't just relax here. Don't you trust my taste at least a bit at this point, Aziraphale? To his surprise, Aziraphale blushes just a bit, a rosy pink appearing at his cheeks as he ducks his eyes away and then turns back. I suppose I must do, he murmurs, looking delectable, and Crowley drinks more water in a small, enthusiastic panic. Their meals have arrived. Fish and chips for Crowley, who won't be able to eat a whole meal at this point, having skipped lunch, a shepherd's pie for Aziraphale and their wine is steadily disappearing. Aziraphale had let Crowley order for him as well, and Crowley had picked open his tastes with a number of questions, revealing that while Aziraphale was certainly capable of gourmet food tasting, he had a soft spot for rich bar entrees with a twist. The shepherd's pie here comes with goat cheese mixed into the mashed potato, and Crowley is rewarded by a series of indecent noises as Aziraphale takes his first couple bites. So, Aziraphale says, halfway through their meal, when they've both been refilled on wine, you looked rather tired earlier. 
What have you been up to, out in your wild acres? Crowley grins and eats another chip laden with ketchup. Spring is a hard season, he tells Aziraphale. Spring and fall, you know, those are the seasons of work. Summer's a lot of watching and waiting. Winter's the same, but with less to watch. Anyway, bud burst is just the start. You have to, you know, direct the growth afterwards. Suckering, it's called. Aziraphale, thankfully, doesn't have any kind of notebook. Although Crowley's sure he's storing notes behind those bright blue-grey eyes. Tell me about it. It's more an order and a demand, but Crowley feels himself wanting to explain it anyway. Hells, he'd pull all of his knowledge out of his brain and display it around him like a peacock just to get Aziraphale to look. What the fuck, Crowley? So, but burst requires direction, Crowley starts. He's moved on to a lovely Zinfandel from Rodney Strong, which tastes of dirt, but in the best way possible. If you let everything grow, you can starve out the vine, right? Too much potential, too many possibilities, and not a one of them gets enough nutrients. You have to get in there, thin it out, so that the bits that grow can get enough from the root structure to be fully fed. But how on earth do you know? Well, Crowley says and it catches in his throat a bit. He's picking at his second piece of fish more than eating it. Days like this, he really only needs a few bites to fill his stomach for whatever reason. I mean, you don't know entirely exactly. You just kind of... um. He ends up making this weird noise in the back of his throat and gesturing in the air, trying to spell out the curve of the existing vine and the places where the buds have sprouted, fully aware that he's probably just making nonsense pictures with his hands. You look at what's sprouting and you look at the layout of the vine and you sometimes can get this picture in your head of where there's a space to grow and where there isn't. And then you just... well... He makes a pinching motion between his thumb and the nail of his middle finger. You sucker off the ones you don't need. Fascinating. Aziraphale breathes and Crowley's breath gets caught in his stupid throat. You'll have to show me. Aziraphale's face is flushed from wine and from the richness of the shepherd's pie. Plus the fried Brussels sprouts and the pretzel bites they'd ordered as appetizers. This had all been taken in against wines Crowley had continued to suggest for Aziraphale. There was something... Fuck, there were no words for it other than teasing 
about the other man's willingness to wait for Crowley's suggestion, and Crowley found himself playing right into it. Any gap he could possibly find, he wanted to be the one filling it. Food, wine, recommendations, even the blues cover band they had tentatively identified as an event to meet up at next week. Crowley was swimming rather foolish with it. He was enjoying the ability to recommend things for Aziraphale, to control his experience here and make sure it was as perfect as Crowley could make it. And why? No one was looking at that question. Crowley was well aware that AZ Fell was done here in six months and would return to LA for the next step in his writing career. Maybe Crowley just wanted to make sure Aziraphale got most of the information he needed or that he had pleasant memories of the trip as a whole. Maybe they'd exchange emails. I can do that if you really want to see he offers, casually, as if he hasn't been dying for Aziraphale's footprints in his soil for weeks now. Oh, I can take pictures! Aziraphale looks inordinately pleased. They're always after me to take some of my own for the block. Crowley, who has maybe spent hours combing through a taste of heaven at this point, Frowns and says, There are usually pictures on your entries, aren't there? Warlock, Aziraphale tells him. Or stock photos. Apparently FTA owns a few photographers who just index all their work and wait for Uriel or Sandalfon to call. Aziraphale's glistening mood has dimmed the slightest bits. Crowley's sure he wouldn't have noticed at all had he not been so enthralled in Aziraphale's company, but he has noticed, so he says, There it is. You said you've had a day. Out with it, Angel. But this is so nice, Aziraphale says with a wince. I'd feel like I was ruining an otherwise lovely night. Crowley stammers, unsure which of those parts he wants to reply to. This is not a date, he tells himself, even though his heart is stupidly pounding. I... no need to get into your business, he manages finally. But it is a lovely evening, in it? And that means you can, you know... Spill whatever's on your mind, if you need. Aziraphale just looks at him for a long moment. It's the kind of measured look that feels as if Aziraphale's reading something on his face that Crowley doesn't even know is there, and he tries not to self-consciously squirm as Aziraphale watches. But then Aziraphale breathes out, as if making a decision, and turns back to the bar, lifting his glass and squaring his shoulders. 
Gabriel, that's my boss, right? Or maybe my manager. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure Gabriel's sure. Anyway, he's in charge of me at FTA. Aziraphale takes a sip. We had a bit of, um, a quarrel today about my book. Who the fuck still uses the word quarrel? Crowley rests his elbows on the bar, tips his cheek into his palm. Do tell. Oh, I've written some bits and pieces I want to be the first chapter and Gabriel hates it, Aziraphale says in a rush. Now, he doesn't know quality writing from toilet tissue, mind you, but he says the feel is all wrong. The topic, it isn't commercial enough. Crowley grunts and his hand jerks as if he's going to throw his drink in Gabriel's face. Aziraphale takes his noise as an invitation to continue. I know what I want to do. <laughs> he starts and then gives a self-deprecating laugh. <laughs> no, I guess that's only partially true. I don't know what I want this book to be at all, but I do know what I want to write. And I have been. He sounds incredibly defensive, so Crowley leans in a bit more, trying to catch Aziraphale's eyes. He wants to take off his sunglasses so that he can make sure Aziraphale's looking at him rather than seeing this Gabriel or anything awful, but he just... he doesn't... he isn't ready to do that in public. Did he say what's wrong with it? Aziraphale's shoulders hunch over on himself and Crowley immediately regrets asking. Aziraphale, this isn't snappy enough. It isn't punchy enough. Your blog has a theme, an attitude. This doesn't have the same rhythm to it at all. He is doing terribly accurate impressions of some American accent, the kind a businessman might have on one of those sitcoms that are all interchangeable. It needs to be more marketable. What's your brand? The slump deepens and Aziraphale sounds miserable as he says in his own accent, I don't want this book to be my blog for 500 pages. I want it to be a book. I don't know the man, remember? Says Crowley, trying to be tactful. But Gabriel sounds like a bit of a wanker. He does slip his sunglasses down to his nose then, meeting Aziraphale's eyes. Write what you want to write, Angel. It's you. I'm sure it'll be good. Aziraphale laughs, a little forlorn sound, and takes a long drink of his wine. Gabriel can be difficult, sure, but this trip, this entire thing, it's all his doing. 
The book has to be something he likes, or it isn't going to succeed. Crowley frowns. He remembers having bosses like this, who think they have the pulse of the market and only want their employees to put out exactly what they're asking for. He thinks about the links in all of the A Taste of Heaven blog posts he's read, the photo captions it's obvious Aziraphale didn't write, and wonders how much of his friend's creative spirit has already suffered. Anyway, Aziraphale says suddenly, sitting up straight, I'm not letting that get in the way of our evening. He pauses and then his face relaxes into a genuine, if crooked, smile. But thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Crowley feels oddly warmed by it, especially since he hasn't really done much. Look, Angel, I don't know much about the book market. Don't really read books. But I'm pretty sure you could post a live transcript of you eating cake and drinking Zinfandel, and it would do well. You know what you're talking about. He ducks his head, suddenly almost shy, and he hasn't been shy since he was four years old. Fascinating to listen to, really. How crowly! Aziraphale begins, and there's something shimmering in it, something too grateful. Something that Crowley's a bit afraid to hear now, feeling all mixed up like he does. That's terribly kind of you to say. Not kind, Crowley tells him, and he resettles into his seat expression hidden behind sunglasses and legs akimbo. Don't ruin my reputation, angel. Aziraphale shakes his head, but his smile is fond, so fond, and Crowley thinks, well, fuck. Anthony J. Crowley tends to his life like he tends to his vineyard. Ruthlessly, with plenty of yelling and swearing and the underlying bell ringing of anxiety that defines his days. Normally, when things like this crop up, odd offshoots of feelings he's really rather done with, he takes them, prunes them, suckers them off at the branch. It may be too late. He has, somehow, missed the tempering season on this, the way that Aziraphale has worked his way into Crowley's chest. He may not be able to cut back the growth without killing the vine entirely. He should be more upset about this, Crowley thinks. He should be.